Welcome in, welcome in to another episode of Cap and Trade. I am your host, Texans Cap. You can follow me on Twitter at Texans Cap, or if you prefer the written form, which we actually did put out a written form this week, capandtrade.substack.com. That's the newsletter location. Put out a uh, post today, so did a quick little evaluation on uh, the trades. I wanted to compare it against uh, the Carolina trade, so if you're interested in reading that, uh, head on over there and uh, hit that subscribe button. But everybody, I appreciate everybody hopping in. This will be uh, kind of our our uh, our cap to the uh, to the off season. Uh, now that the draft has passed, you know, we got through free agency. Got now we got through the draft. Um, got through the undrafted free agents, even though those won't be announced until probably next week, based on what I've been told. Uh, the team wants to wait for. Uh, a few things to get sorted out before they announce those. So that's why you haven't seen the Texans announce theirs. Sounds like they've agreed to terms with nine players. And then uh, Eric Tomlinson was signed today, veteran tight end. So it looks like the team is now at 88 roster spots. So appreciate everybody hopping in. Sam, good to see you. STX, another good night, my man. I'm ready to go. We'll get uh, Mike. He looks much brighter tonight, ready to go, getting himself uh, sorted out over there. But we'll get Mike in here in just a quick second. Uh, got a lot of, you know, a few things to get to tonight. You know, we'll just kind of discuss the draft, how things went, what our, you know, what our uh, perceptions are of everything and what our expectations are going forward. Um, just to, you know, kind of put a bow tie on the draft per se. So truth, welcome in. So let's get our esteemed guest, Mr. Mike Meltzer. Good evening, sir. Cap, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. You look much better this time. I know. It was a, one of those simple technological feats of unplug and plug back in. That's That'll do it. I am doing good, sir. I'm doing good. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of relieved to finally get through draft season because it was brutal this year. <laughs> It was yes. Brutal. It was rough the last few weeks. It was a uh, the longest, especially the last two weeks. It was it was like every day was like three days worth of and jammed into one day. And so I'm glad it's over with. I'm glad it's done. So the draft. What I mean, what do you think, man? Just give me the just the gleaming thirty thousand foot view without the weeds. What do you think? So. They went all in as far as kickstarting the rebuild. Uh, the last time a team had the second and third picks was what? When the Washington Redskins drafted LeVar Arrington and Chris Samuels. I don't know if that's yeah. exactly right, but that's that sounds right to me. Yeah, it's pretty um, close. So I like that they drafted a quarterback because I have been a believer the whole offseason that based on where they were, you, know, you kind of like golf, you play the ball where it lies. And even though in an ideal universe, you might be drafting Caleb Williams next season. It would have taken a whole lot to get there. A lot of unknowns. I think Stroud made sense at number two. I think Anderson was an overpay at three as far as the trade goes, even if it was considered just a trade for Stroud. But they vastly upgraded their talent. Uh, I don't like how Nick Casario trades up for nearly every single one of his picks, just because yeah. I, I just haven't seen any evidence of other GMs who do it as frequently as he does and not trading up ev- yeah other teams yeah. up and down like, if, but hit all of his are almost except for one all of his or no two times of the eight times he moved back the other ones were all up yes i would love to know how many gms consistently move up 
to draft players they target with the frequency that he does. But it provides a much-needed boost to the city in the sense that there's juice, there's reason to watch the football team. I thought the most measured national article or column about their situation was written by Connor Orr of SI because he was the guy – because I'm always interested in like the people nationally who understand the pulse of a city – you may not have, you may not have to live in Houston, but you have to get the pulse of it. And, and he wrote that he disagreed with how aggressive they were to get Anderson and the cost, but he did acknowledge like the that people in Houston have been fed football gruel for the last two years. And basically, what's happened to the fans between Deshaun Watson, JJ Watt, DeAndre Hopkins before them, it was almost unfair. And so you could see why. From an emotional standpoint, the Texans did what they did last Thursday. So I appreciated that he acknowledged what's been going on because it's one thing to be a bad team. Like the Chicago Bears were a bad team, but they had a franchise quarterback play at times very well last season, right? Uh, you've got, you know, Arizona had a disappointing season, but they were a more watchable product, I think, on balance in Houston. The Texans were like NFL Siberia the last two years. That's the difference. This was a special level of incompetence. Yeah, and I, I'm 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 with you on that front too as well. I mean, this, this is almost kind of twofold. It's it's getting the team and the roster going in the right direction, but it's also about keeping this inter inter this fan base energized. I mean, you, you hired the fan favorite D'Amico Ryan's had a I wouldn't say a seller free agency, but it was better than the past two free agencies. The type of players that they were signing wasn't just scraping the barrel type players. It was more focused type free agent signings. And then you carried that through into the draft. And so all that energy, like you said, all that juice, especially that the fan base is now chomping at the bit. We'll see crowded training camps again. And I'm interested, I'm interested to start to see the attendance at games. I don't, I'm not expecting a full on full stadium again. But I'm certainly not expecting. I mean, you you were there with me at the Cleveland game. Not expecting yeah. a, a twenty or thirty percent attendance rate. I, I think you're going to get and a lot of game, the yeah. That game, I, was, uh, I thought had a pretty good atmosphere. It did. And there, that one they had For more different people reasons. just because of the other opposing quarterback on the field. But yes, but I think in general, maybe you know, maybe sixty, seventy percent. Who knows? But I think you're gonna you'll you'll see the fans start coming back and then to get that final batch of fans in there to get back to that hundred percent, they were so accustomed to having for so many years. It's just going to take wins. Yeah. They got to win. Yeah. As simple as that. And I think, I think what that's what this draft was. I think this draft was, I, I normally don't cuss on here, but this was shit or get off the pot. You know, it's been two years. We need to see something. And I think, yes. I think that was Casario's reaction was, okay, well, I want my guy. Let's get the quarterback that everybody wants. Let's just jam it out. Yeah, we're going to overpay. Let's get this package done and come out of it with those two cornerstone, you know, potential cornerstone players. So I have, I'm with you. I mean, I have, I understand. I, I don't like the package, but I understand the package and I understand the reasoning for them making those type of moves. And, you know, regardless of the player that you're drafting up for, there's going to be a cost associated moving up from 12 to two or 12 to three, regardless if you're coming up for a quarterback or a DN or anybody, any type of player for that matter. But 
I'm tired of playing the next year game. I'm Caleb Williams. I'm no longer thinking about him. I'm, I'm ready to move forward with CJ Stroud and what did what he can bring to the table, what Bobby Sloak and how he can deploy him and his other assets that he has on offense now and just get moving forward. I feel like we've been treading water. I feel like the water's been at our been at our mouth for the past two years. The whole fan base is just treading water, waiting, waiting, waiting. Okay. It's yes. time. Let's go. Let's go forward. Let's move forward. Let's we're finally I had Brandon Scott on here a couple of weeks ago and he was like, just use the picks. I'm tired of training back. Everybody's talking about trade back from 12. Just use the picks. And that's what they did. And they used additional picks. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited from, from a fan perspective. I'm excited from a, a analysis standpoint. And I'm, I'm excited to get back there on a, on a Sunday and, and see actual Texans jerseys and not the opposing team's jerseys yes. walking around. But I mean, barring, yeah, barring yeah, something ahead. unforeseen, yeah. Stroud's going to start week one. You're going to have Anderson obviously start week one. Uh, I'm guessing one of Juice Scruggs or maybe even this Jared Patterson guy. Uh, so you're going to have an influx. Uh, I'm sure you'll have Tank Dell back there on special teams and or mixed in the slot. And there's going to be a people nationally. Th- this is not going to be the draw of like the Chiefs, obviously, but there'll be yeah. some intrigue from a. Yeah. Uh, NFL Sunday ticket red zone standpoint. Now, what's going on with the Texans, which has not really been the case since probably early in 2020. There will be reasons to watch this team. Very much so. I, I think CJ Stroud's going to be the number one selling point, but I, I mean, I think D'Amico Ryan's in general and how this staff manages this roster, I think is going to be a big, a big watching point for, for national, from a national perspective. And that part just is, like we said, it's exciting for everybody involved. And, you know, speaking of the draft, did you have a, maybe a CJ Stroud, but did you have a particular, like, favorite draft pick out of this class that Houston made? Or is it just a, I'm good with everything, I don't really have a specific player in mind kind of thing? Or it's a, That's a good question. Do I have a favorite pick? You know, it's hard because of the trade-up. Um, I, I do feel, I just have this sense that Anderson's going to work out. And th- there's something about his energy. They clearly, they, they seem to rank him as the top overall prospect on the board. And like, I think they would have taken Bryce if they were number one, but this yes. is a separate deal. Like yeah. I think that Will Anderson was number one and he just has this sort of like magnetic smile, personality, work ethic. Do I worry that he's not quite the athlete that you would typically expect in an edge? He's not Von Miller. That does worry me, but I just kind of have this sense that this is going to work. Uh, don't like the price. I do like the player. Um, what else? I mean, the other ones I thought were, were fairly solid across the board. I obviously wanted them to draft a quarterback to kind of start that cycle. Uh, I thought Hutchinson made a lot of sense in the sixth round. And this is this is like classic Mike Meltzer nerdiness. My favorite <laughs> Nick Casario move, even though some people didn't like it, is I like trading the fourth round pick for the third round next yes, year, the yes, third rounder, yes. because that's – you think about that, like I think the part that's that a bid have, on variance, and yes, you win more often than you realize. Yes, and what people I think haven't fully pointed out is like they gave up a fourth round pick, like they gave up a, a, a pick of a player that could have contributed, you know, to their football team because they only had then the one fourth rounder, Dilton Horton. Like you draft guys in the fourth round, I'm not saying they're locks, they're far from it, they're probably 
I would guess the numbers are like what probably 15 to 20 percent to hit something somewhere probably around that general range but you can draft players in round four especially with this roster who can yeah. contribute yeah. they sacrifice that despite all the other moves to then get a third round pick next year and I think basically complete like have the full more or less complement of picks now some will say oh you might be only moving up 10 spots next year because the Eagles are gonna be very good that's a real possibility but like the Laramie Tunsil deal, or more appropriately, like the Russell Wilson or yeah. the uh, Jamal Adams trade, even or if a team even is the Watson good, trade. I mean, yeah, the Watson trade. You don't know what's going to happen. Like yeah. the Eagles might be the best run organization in football. If Jalen Hurts, God forbid, tears his ACL in Week Three, that pick might be like twelfth in the third round. Yeah, and that's part of what you're paying for, which goes to what you said. When teams make trades like that historically a discounted pick like i give you my five this year for your four next year in this case i give you my four now for your three later statistically that tends to work out and you typically get a higher pick and i'm not even including the fact that this was a relatively weak draft there's a real chance that next year's draft is just better with more depth and more talented players yeah yeah no, I, i'm all for that type of trade um the one that was the one that was interesting and it was the uh, trade back with Philadelphia. It felt like we were, the team was trading with Philadelphia all weekend. Yes. Um, when they moved back from the sixth round, I think it was pick 191 and got two sevenths. And then Philly flips that for a fifth rounder in 2024. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he takes two sevenths and turns them yes. into a fifth in 2024. I was like, ah! Yeah, but, that was a good job by Howie. Yeah. yeah. Like, So I guess the Texans could have done something like that. Uh, that, that I mean, it's like, just timing. It's it's hard to say that they could have done the sure. same thing. It's just timing and, and the way the board felt. I just thought it was interesting. I just I saw that and then I saw that trade. I was like, wait a minute, that was a pick we traded. But yeah, but, uh, no, it's you know, if I had a favorite pick on my side, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be Tank Dale. And I okay. I'm with you on Will Anderson. I mean, shoot, go watch the Houston Texans video that they that they posted and look at how Casario greets Will Anderson. I mean, yeah. like, like it's his, like it's his lost son that he's never seen before. <laughs> and I sent it to a friend of mine. I said, find somebody that loves you as much as Nick Casario loves Will Anderson. Oh yeah. And, and there, yeah, he was clearly outside of Bryce Anderson. He was clearly at the top of their board and he's been at the top of their board for a long time. And so, but Tank Dell, I think, and the way I've been kind of describing him personally, and this may be way off base, is he's kind of like a, a positionless player for this offense. He can hmm. line up at running back and you know split out at the last second. He can line up in the slot. He can you know maybe find a mismatch and get a linebacker to follow him out to the outer boundary. You know it's going to be all about mismatches for him when he's on the field. Like where can we stash him that's going to get a nickel cornerback? or a linebacker or, you know, outside somebody that has no business covering him whatsoever. How can we find a way to get him that mismatch and how can we create space around him to let him make a move once he gets the ball in his hands, you know, whether it's jet sweeps, short routes, I mean, just whatever. That's kind of like, I'm really excited to see the imagination that slow can come up with to utilize him. I mean, he's not, big like Debo Samuel was or anything like that. And I'm not, not trying to make that comparison, but I just think how they utilize Samuel similar to that, you know, just 
all over the place. He's not designated to one position. He's just kind of like your offensive weapon type position. So, and then I think, I think there might be a case to have him returning uh, punts as well. So, um, I know they had they did some of that with him when they did the the local workout day with him. So, yep. that one I, I'm really excited about. And then you mentioned Patterson earlier, and that was really a, a, a I'm really intrigued about how that whole interior offensive line shakes out. And I'm starting to get a little. I don't know if concern is the right word, but I'm getting a little peaked entrance of the, the Shaq Mason situation. Like, you know, how so? And maybe it's just me and they tabled extension talks and they said, Hey, let's, we'll talk about this over the summer and maybe they get an extension done over the summer. But if an extension doesn't get done and he's only got one year left on this deal. And that was, I mean, they traded, day three pick. So it's not a really big asset loss there, but it just, you know, Patterson, he, he was, he was a center juice played guard and center. And it's almost kind of like, let's just find the best combination of this, of this group of players and how they fit onto the offensive line. And whether that ends up with, with Scruggs as guard and Patterson as center or Mason as guard and Scruggs as center, you know, whatever. And I'm sure, It'll probably shake out with Scruggs in the center, Mason, Green, and Tunsil and Howard, and then you have Heck and um, and Patterson as your as your swing guys. But I do like it. Just it is, I'm a little intrigued with Mason now and how this plays out and what the expectations were with the interior line because that was clearly clearly the, one of the worst pieces of this offense. So you see. Like Ben Baldwin will put out his little offensive line rankings and the tack and it does it by position. It'll have like tackles, guards, and center. And it's yep. on a zero to one hundred scale. And the tackles is like ninety-one. And then the center and the guards are like twelve. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> just absolutely horrible. And they end up being like a an averaged out like medium, you know, middle of the pack slightly back bottom third of the pack offensive line. So I think putting those out kind of asset allocation there, bringing in Matt Mason on the trade, drafting the two interior players, hoping green can find his way back. Just gives me hope that, you know, I'm, I'm not expecting a top five offensive line. I just want a functional mm-hmm. offensive line where Stroud can actually learn and not just get body slammed every other week. Yeah. I'm always curious to see who's, who's versatile to do what, like you look at, Drafting both Scruggs and Patterson. We've seen this before in the NFL where a team double dips on a position, and then oddly enough, the guy who's later drafted somehow outplays the earlier drafted player. Who knows if that happens here, but I, I kind of wonder between those two guys, uh, if Nick Casario had to pick one who might be more versatile, like who could play guard, I wonder who that might be. Uh, because as you mentioned, they need a lot of help on the interior. Green's got to get, get a lot better. That's big for the long term of the franchise. Uh, Shaq Mason needs to plug in and play well. And then you also want to have some depth there. Like I have no belief in Scott Questenberry, Morrissey, who the hell knows? Um, like who's the bat? Who's like the top backup guard right now on this team? Who would that I mean, be? It's, they have like a million centers right now. Um, yeah, a lot of centers. Yeah. So yeah. right now that it's <laughs> the, the coolest name ever, Dylan Deathridge, undrafted Tyler beach, undrafted. And then they've got, so really, if you count Jimmy Morrissey, Michael Dieter, 
Jarrett Patterson, Juice Scruggs, and Klesenberry all as centers. Then you have nine offensive linemen, but four of them are guards. Mm-hmm. And two of them are undrafted. So there's going to be – I don't know. It's going to be – it's going to be interesting how that all shakes out. I don't, I feel like it's, you know, a juice Scruggs and, and then Patterson is kind of like your swing guy between guards and center. And then I don't see Jimmy Morrissey or Michael Deer making this roster unless something just changes during camp. I would tend to agree. But yeah, I mean, it's, that's probably still one of their lightest group or position group is the guards at the moment. But like you said, there is a little versatility between Scruggs and Patterson and, and, both of them having experience at both guard and center and having good experience and good performances at both positions. It wasn't just a horrible at one and good at the other. So I think, uh, I think that is something just had to keep an eye on. Maybe that's something where they, they settle in on another guard once they get into camp or, you know, injuries happen. I mean, it just, it's way too early, but it, that's going to be probably one of the main positions to watch for, and the and once camp gets going, um, so we talked about the trades. I, I wanted to add, and I know kind of have your I know your answer on this, but is Nick a good negotiator? I had this question written down. No, I, I no, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't but think it doesn't seem like it. He seems well, to yeah. overpay more often than not. I mean, looking back at all the day three weird trades he made his first year that guys had never even saw the roster a, a week later with like Anthony <laughs> Miller and, and yeah that was a debacle and the cornerback from you know Holman from Green Bay and then the oh yeah and then Brandon Allen from Cincinnati like and then these um, six round picks for guys and then they're gone Marcus Cannon God yeah. so he, I I don't know if he just gets you know, just gets a little amped up and is like, wants to get it done. And who knows? I, I don't know. Well, but it, it's some of the trades this weekend. And I know some people don't like the trade charts that I post and I get that. Some of them had good, even value. Some of them didn't. So it's, it's kind of hit and miss. I don't know how much you negotiate in your job. I do obviously a decent amount in mine, but I'm always thinking about like, the trade that you see is the one that they ended up at. So what I'm always wondering is what, what exactly did, let's say Arizona ask for that you were unwilling to give, you know what I mean? Like typically, you know, sides are like, let me get this right here yeah. in negotiation when they start and they kind of like move to the yeah. middle. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I'm always wondering like if this <laughs> is, where they ended up at. <laughs> is number 12, number 33, the first round pick in 2024, the third round pick, where were we here exactly? Like, what was that? Yeah. Um, like, what what did they ask for? Did they ask for, like, three first-round picks? You know, for however you want to put it, Shroud or Anderson, the combination to guarantee both of them. Uh, I'm always wondering about that. Like, what was the first ask Arizona had? Um, I'm also wondering, part of bad negotiating would be if you make an offer that the other team can't refuse. Like, I imagine however Bill O'Brien negotiated the Laramie Tunsil deal, it's like if I'm Chris Greer, Miami's GM, and somebody calls me and says, hey, I'm going to give you two first-round picks, a second-round pick, and whatever else is going on in that deal, I might think to myself, like, yeah, maybe I can negotiate for more, but I might not want to push my luck here. Like, let me just take this. So does Nick open 
because I know there's the whole story about how like they were down to the last like min- minute 30 with Arizona. I tend to think that deal, especially based on Daniel Jeremiah's mock the night before, they had had the, discussions about the parameters. The framework, of that deal. I think the framework was more or less in place, and then just yes. maybe maybe Arizona said, "Hey, if we're going to get this done, then I need this because yes, I can't so get I, my I guy or whatever, whatever it may be." Yeah, I I wonder about that. And then the last part about Nick as a negotiator is this is what I always wonder about, and I don't know the answer. This is the kind of thing you may never, no, never know the answer. If you gave up the Cleveland one versus the Houston one, and I know that you you and I might value those picks differently, but I had McLean on my satellite radio show Saturday, and I asked him, was that a preference or a concession? And he said, no, Mike, that was a concession by them, but by the Texans to give up their first rounder. Now, I don't know if McLean's right, but that's what he's reporting mm-hmm. uh, or what he told me on the radio Saturday. What I'm wondering is, and it, it depends on the val- on the valuation you have in those picks, but like, let's say for the sake of the discussion that you and I value the Cleveland pick or the, sorry, the Houston pick higher because there's a better chance it is up in the draft order. Right. If you offer Arizona and Monty Osenfort Cleveland's first round pick, 12, 33 in the third rounder, like, are they going to say no to that deal because it's the difference between the Cleveland pick and the Houston pick. That's what I always wonder about. Like, is that going to be the difference for them to say, nope, we're going to reject your trade and then stay at three and then do what? Pick Will Anderson themselves? Maybe. Yeah. That That's like what I would, wonder about. I don't yeah, I don't know if you have like thoughts they on that. Paris, John. It, it's interesting. And the calculus on that is is very difficult to ascertain from, from their perspective. And I – it seemed like, yeah, I mean, at first glance, you would, by most people, and I, I, I don't want to get my 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 team blinders on, but just at first glance, hey, you would think maybe the Cleveland pick is going to be worse off than Houston's pick. And, and then you see all the odds, and everybody's like, Arizona's got the first two picks next year. Yes. Um, but that is an interesting discussion because it does make you wonder if, if Arizona just kind of, maybe just eked out a little, little bit more from Casario at the end, you know, like they had the framework done, maybe made the Stroud pick started, you know, then other teams maybe backed out in number three. We've seen some of the reports um, and Arizona. It, maybe they, maybe they threatened with Will Anderson, who knows, because they could have, you know, Seattle was going to take Anderson. They were going to take Anderson or Witherspoon, whoever was there. And I think Anderson would have been their first choice. Indianapolis was locked in on Richardson. And so there was no way that they could let this go and then think, well, we can trade up to seven or eight and get him. No, they, this was their only shot at getting Will Anderson. And sure. so maybe maybe Austin Ford's on the other line. like, look, if you want him, this is what you're going to have to pay. And if not, then I'm going to draft him. And maybe he turns around and drafts Paris Johnson anyway. But – you know, that's just the way these negotiations go. And, and he really, really, really wanted him and, and kind of paid through the nose on it. So it's, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that type of negotiation and see like, Oh yeah. At what point is, you know, like, and it's coming down to the last minute, like he's reporting. So does it get into a bind? Like, look, we got 60 seconds on the clock here, man. We need to get the kid. We need to get this done. And yeah, fine. Just, Take our first instead of Cleveland's first. Let's let's get to you know maybe that's the way it goes down. I don't know, but it, 
it is interesting to see to see how valued I don't think I think those two picks are going to be fairly close. I think Cleveland's coming for a regression. I'm not entirely convinced Watson's ever going to make it back to where he was. Maybe he does, but playing in Cleveland is definitely not good for him from a weather aspect and conditions and things like that. And so I feel like there's a good chance that those picks could probably end up within like five slots of each other next year. Yeah, I mean, they, and, they both could be high picks. It's just, yeah. you, you know, it's nerve-wracking because Texans over-under is set at five and a half. They won yeah. three games last year, tied the other. Mm-hmm. And once you get past, like, you know, this is going to be obvious commentary, but winning and losing is very binary. It's like you can't win, like, 80% of a game, right? Yeah. Like, you either win or you lose, or I guess you tie. And so the Texans could, like, play decently well this season whatever that might mean to you and then win like six games like that's actually possible you know what i mean because like you face some tougher teams and i actually think the last place schedule is overrated because the two teams you play based on last place are the jets on the road and denver i think at home and both teams i think should be substantially improved from this past season for different reasons uh, but you do play the nfc south but the point is that like D'Amico can coach well, you can play much better, but you could win six games and give up, let's say, I don't know what that would be, Cap, but let's say the seventh, sixth, eighth, eighth pick in the draft, which is a high cost, you yeah. know, based on what they gave up or traded for. Yeah, but it's not number two overall. And I just don't, yes. just don't, I just, I mean, the football gods has got to give us a little leeway at some point you can't have <laughs> I, I like a top three pick referencing the football gods yes a, you know top three pick three years in a row it just just no it no and that would have to just be something tragic happen for houston so and and at the end of the day you know and and beige makes a good point i mean it's he really wanted anderson and arizona utilized that to their advantage and was able to get additional assets and Houston's comfortable with that and I get it and I'm I'm fine with it from that perspective that's what you want to do and that's the price you're paying you still have another first round of next year you still have some now we're back to the normal draft capital no more abundance of picks anymore now we're back to the normal eight I think they have eight picks next year so because the one thing I do want to point out is that in Houston in the last 10 years I think you have to say that the best trades that have been made by Houston sports organizations have been made because what the value they gave up was really not all that much. And I'll point to a couple of specific deals. Okay. So when the Astros trade for Justin Verlander, now we didn't know how it would turn out, but the three prospects they gave up, even at the time was kind of like, Hey, this is a pretty fair price to pay. They're all busts. It looks even better. Mm-hmm. Like it, you got Justin Verlander, right? They wouldn't have won the world series or the American league without Justin Verlander period. They had, they got the player. But if they had traded Kyle Tucker for Justin Verlander, it would be, have been a worse trade, right? Like it would have been a worse trade because you give up more for the guy. And then even though he would have helped you the way he did, you would arguably not have won the World Series last year or gotten there the year before. It would have been a worse trade just by paying more. The James Harden deal 11 years ago. Daryl Morey makes that deal. A legendary trade in the history of the NBA. Rockets don't give up a whole lot for him. If Daryl had given up two or three extra first-round picks for James Harden, it still would have been a fair trade, but it would have been an objectively worse trade because you wouldn't have those assets. In any league, even in baseball, where there's no salary cap, every asset you have in a capped sport is precious because you can't easily replace it. Uh, And the other example, going back to Houston and going back to the Texans, so the Texans 
gave up, I'll say, 150 cents on the dollar to get Laramie Tunsil, who has been, when he's on the field the last three years, has been a premier left tackle. So I think what Nick Casario did is he walked into like a Lexus dealership and he paid, I don't know what they cost. I'm not that rich, (laughs) but let's say they cost a hundred or whatever. He paid like 150 for a hundred thousand dollar car. Now you can do that once in a while if you've got money, but if you keep doing that, like you're not going to really be financially solvent. Meanwhile, the 49ers trade a fifth round pick and what a second round pick for Trent Williams. And they do it. I want to say, the same off season or they do it a year later, right? Let me get let me get the trade terms exactly correct here. Yeah, they uh, got a third they got, sorry, they got him cheap. A third and a fifth. Yeah. So San Francisco trades for a guy who is as good or better or a little worse than Laramie Tunsil, but they give up way less to do it. Yeah. These kind of things matter in a salary cap sport. It's not a criticism of Laramie Tunsil or in this case Will Anderson. It's just to say value means a lot because at the end of the day, even if CJ Stroud is great, even if Will Anderson is great, let's just take that and assume it for the sake of argument. To win a Super Bowl or to win the AFC, you're going to have to find players. Nick Casario or whoever is going to have to find players in rounds two, three, four, five who are cheap and who are good. See the last million teams that have won Super Bowls. That's the way I think about value in trades. Yeah. Yeah. And Trent, Trent Williams is way older. Yeah, he was. And there, there's, it's worth saying that those were two completely different situations. Trent Williams wanted out of Washington. He was going to get out of Washington. He literally forced his way out because he wouldn't even put his helmet on because he played, you know, played the card that something wasn't right and then got to San Francisco and the helmet just fit just fine. But, you know, and you see, same thing here. They're talking about, 49ers trading three first for Trey Lance. The the thing about well, that's the been 40, a bad trade. So it has far. been a bad trade, but the 49ers keep winning. Yes, that that's where they get the cachet to be able to do that kind of stuff, and it be kind of overlooked. And then Houston does something similar, and they just get drug in the media the past three days. And I mean, I've tried to put my spin on it as well. And a lot of people in, in Houston have put their spin on it as well, but the media is the national media is not going to see it that way. They see it as you could have traded. I mean, you could have drafted CD Stroud and taken Ben S or somebody else as another edge at 12 and kept 33 and in, in your future one. So yeah, they traded all that capital for Will Anderson and you know, Hey, that that's just what Houston did. And we'll have to wait and see if it's worth value. I just don't know that Will Anderson could ever play at a level that the national media of the ones who were raking the team over the coals would come back in three years and go, yeah, it was worth it. That was worth well, it. Well, it's also one of those things, Cap, where famously Bill Belichick advised Thomas Dimitrov not to give up all those picks for Julio Jones. Mm-hmm. And Bill Belichick ends up being wrong and Thomas Dimitrov ends up being right. But, And I think this actually makes sense when you think about it. Thomas Dimitrov made the right trade in moving up and getting Julio Jones, but it still cost the Falcons because they didn't have those extra picks to use. If that makes sense. Like you can still get the great player and it can still hurt your team. Not like from a bottom line standpoint, but just it can hurt your team by trading for somebody or trading up for somebody who's really good, but losing a lot of assets, even if that player is good. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think, you know, maybe the calculus is like, like we said, you still have the other first and that's part of the calculus in the, in the whole situation. And maybe it, it's probably, yeah, might it's be probably a little bit different. Yeah. It might be a little bit different situation if they did not have the extra first, maybe they don't make that move. But I think in the grand scheme of things, looking at the package deal or you're getting CJ Stroud and Will Anderson, knowing the team still has a first, knowing the team still has a second next year, then maybe it's worth it from that perspective. I mean, they still even have the third next year that they got from Philadelphia. So they still have eight picks next year. There's no, uh, no six rounder. So, I mean, it's, they got one, two, three and two fours. So they still have five picks in the first four rounds as of now for next year. So yes, I imagine all of that played into the, to the calculus of that trade. Um, But it was interesting though. I, you take out the trades and stuff and you look at, you know, draft gate draft grades are what they are. I get that. It's more or less just a, a click click kind of thing, but see more often than not that Houston received good draft grades. And I think a lot of those like Dane Burglar, he's not, he's not including the trade made or anything like that. He's just basing that on the players drafted, yeah. not where they're drafted, not what slot, just, who did they draft? And I think a lot of the a lot of the same evaluators are looking at it the same way. So a lot of them came back and said, yeah, Houston had a very good draft, not including how they got there, but they came out with a very good draft. And so I think Scruggs kind of surprised a lot of people going that early, but um, same conversely, Hutchison, I think a lot of people didn't envision him going that late in the draft. So I'm really excited for the team. I'd, you know, I'm really excited going forward. I feel like we're, the arrow's finally starting to point back up. Um, it's no more dreading another season. <laughs> you know, there's finally some yes. excitement. So hey, you're looking forward to this one, yes. Yeah. So what what for 2023 on a on a record standpoint, what would you consider a successful year for Houston? I would say seven wins. Seven wins. Okay. You get to seven, which is at least three more than you've had in each of the last three seasons. I think that would be a success because at that point, you'd probably be beating, you know, one or two decent teams. Uh, Hopefully Stroud, Anderson stay healthy at their respective positions. I would say right around seven, Um, you you know, seven. This is unlikely, but seven is, you know, seven wins, depending on the order they come could have you playing actually meaningful football games in December. I would say that's more unlikely with this team, but if you get to seven, that would be a success for me. Yeah. So if, if they had seven wins, so it's one, two, three, four, five, six. So that's six. That puts you around pick seven, depending on there's probably going to be some tiebreakers and stuff. So yeah, I'm a little, little more bullish. I'm more in the eight, eight win would be more of a success for me. Um, seven, I would be happy with. Anything below seven, I would be quite disappointed, absent that there's not some major injury or something that that affects the team that they just can't get past. But I think just not only from the wins, is there any – What do, I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this kind of answer. Like, what do we want to see from this organization, not from the number of wins – which we've said is seven and eight, but just from product on the field functioning as a normal organization. I think, I think last year, I think Levy Smith kind of righted the ship 
from an actual normal functioning type of organization on and off the field. It got a little cagey, you know, midway through the season and towards the end, but you know, he started getting a little spicy with media and, and things like that. And so what do you want to see from this team on the field, off the field going forward as to also be considered successful? If there's a way to answer that. I'm trying to think. Well, if we start with the offense, you want to see Bobby Slowick be the next Mike McDaniel or Kevin O'Connell, um, you know, Mike LaFleur, um, or Matt LaFleur, I should say. I was yeah. I, I flipped them. Yeah. yeah, more Matt than Mike, I suppose. And just have it, you know, see some of the elements of the 49ers offense that you've seen with the running game, with the scheme, with what they do. The passing game looks just naturally easier. That's something I'm big on is my favorite offenses in football are the ones where it doesn't seem like they're working that hard. It seems like it's easy. Oh, the execution's on That's a, to, that's a great way to put it. I love that. Yeah, that's why I my favorite offense of all time was the greatest show on turf Rams. Mm-hmm. Like I love that team. They had great players at running back, receiver, quarterback. Like it was just perfect. Good offensive line. It just like looked so pretty. So I'm I'm biased towards those kind of offenses more than just like pure smash mouth. But I but I have an appreciation for that too. So it's like, you know, at the line of scrimmage, play action. Can you get defenses sort of uh off balance? Can you create plays in the passing game? Because like for this offense to be even average Slowick is going to have to do some real yeoman's work here, uh, especially getting these receivers open, which is, I I neglected to say this about 20, 30 minutes ago, but I don't think it's too much to say, Hey, tank Dell is the kind of athlete with explosive ability that you want to get on the field for this team, even in week one, assuming that he's healthy because you want to present that threat to a defense. So I want to see, you know, pass protection, develop the running game beyond just, Damian Pierce breaking tackles, but yes. develop a running game that's also based on scheme and guys fitting that scheme and executing properly. Not just, hey, my running back broke five tackles and he gained 25 yards, but something to where not it's difficult more, yards. Yeah. Yeah, not difficult yards, schemed up yards. And mm-hmm. then defensively, you know, this is where it can get interesting because uh, really you're looking for the D'Amico Ryan's effect. Like, what is that? Uh, you talk about swarm mentality. How exactly is that? How does that, how is that manifested here? Um, is that, you know, the linebacking core has, I think a lot of question marks. You yep. do have interesting possibilities on the pass rush between Anderson, Grenard, Malik Collins on the inside rankings to an extent. Can they generate pressure on the quarterback? Not always blitzing. Uh, and then ultimately like, if things are answered or if questions are answered in the right way, the secondary could be pretty good. Stingley stays healthy. Uh, yep. Petrie takes a jump. Ward is a seamless fit inside. Nelson maintains his play. You could actually have a pretty viable secondary. So yeah. I'm really eager to see what D'Amico's imprint is defensively, what that looks like. Yeah, it, we, we saw it a complete opposite of what we wanted to see last year. You know, a bunch of zone, Tampa 2 very low blitz rate. He, he kind of upped it towards the back half of the season, but I want to see some creativity, not just vanilla football and expect execution to take over. At some point you've got to scheme up ability to stop the ball and not just rely strictly on execution and playmaking because this roster still not there to be able to do that. And the offensive side, like you said, I, I think, I just want to see 
more than a yard and a half on first down and then be second at long and then running the ball again or something and just not wanting to get mad at this offense with the way they manage second down and third down. I just want to hopefully see some more productive, like they say, stay on schedule, getting three or four yards first down, you know, on the first down and then be able to maintain that schedule going forward and not go backwards. And speaking of Damian Pierce, we'll kind of get off of this for a second. Were you surprised they didn't draft a running back? I was kind of surprised. Not tremendously. Uh, Maybe a little bit. I mean, they signed Singletary, who I think is a yeah. pretty good backup running back. Yeah. For some reason, they signed Mike Boone on day one of free agency, which I can't. <laughs> that really was figure wild. Out. That was the uh, uh, the 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 Eric Murray. It was like yeah, that was bizarre. Who was <laughs> bidding for Mike Boone? And I know it was a low yeah. level contract and low guarantees, but I mean, yeah, that was wild. But yeah, yeah. So if you ask me, like before the draft. Would I have if I had to bet on it? Would they draft a running back? I would say, yeah, sure. Uh, I think so. Um, I'm going to pull up the draft tracker real quick as we talk because I want to look at just the running backs taken because th- there are always a lot of different, you know, options and even um, even players who went undrafted. I thought at running back uh, there were some useful ones. You know, I'm yeah, a little they, biased, and they, and they picked up one. Yeah. Uh, they did invalidate like yeah. Sean Tucker from Syracuse is a good player. I know he had some injury questions, but that guy was a very productive college player. Uh, I like Deuce Vaughn who was picking round six. Everybody's seen that obviously, mm-hmm. uh, you know, McIntosh was a key part of Georgia's running game the last couple of years. So there, there are a lot of different places to go uh, at running back if they, if they wanted to. Uh, so I'm not, I guess I'm a little surprised, but it's not like a massive deal to me. Okay. Yeah. I'd- I was really looking for a day two, early day three, kind of one A, one B with Pierce. And then, you know, because Stingley's only on a one year deal, but, you know, they, I feel like they could probably find another running back if they needed to somewhere along the line during camp, you know, during last, last cutdowns, things like that. But if hopefully Validay can show a little bit of juice and, and get up there and maybe make a, make a make a shot at getting onto this roster because it's going to be very tight. I don't I, – we, we really don't have any history on D'Amico and how he carries his roster. I'd have to go back and look at San Francisco and see how many running backs they carried. But, you know, obviously it's going to be Damian Pierce and Stingletary. And then from there it's Ogabawale, Boone, Gerard Dokes, and, uh, and Valade. And then I don't know if – Beck is going to be considered a fullback or a tight end and you know what that means for Troy Harrison. So it'd be, I don't know if this is a team that's going to carry four running backs and a fullback or three running backs and a fullback. You know, I guess it also depends on special teams, which, you know, if you're not running back one a, then, and you're a running back on this team, you're going to be expected to have some special team skills. So, be interesting to see how that plays out because Ogobowale was very good on special teams. I have no clue if Boone has yep. any special teams works. Um, Dokes did a little special teams. And then we'll obviously have to wait and see with Valade, but that's you know still... What, you know what Valade signed for? Yeah. yeah. I'm curious how much guaranteed money he got. One, I, I had not seen that. This it's week. 175. He got a pretty big, yep. got a pretty big guarantee. So uh, thirty thousand dollars signing bonus, 
145 P5 guarantee, so 175 total. That was probably the tenth mm. tenth highest ish. Well, that well, based on that, it seems like he has a good shot a shot of making the team. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I've always viewed those guarantees on those um, undrafted guys as um, prepayments for prepayments for practice squad. <laughs> yeah, because they have offsets. So if he so if that. he if he doesn't make the roster and he's going to be making what two hundred sixteen thousand for the year on practice squad, the first fourteen weeks are already paid in that okay. guarantee they gave him because it's offset by so that. Then, okay, so then okay, so then he wouldn't get any actual money. No. Okay. No. See, I, I it, should well, know this because yeah. it will. I don't know the actual functionality of like when he's actually paid on a, on a salary guarantee, but uh, sure. I, I believe if I went, if I looked at a few other contracts, there's a paragraph in there that if they're released, this guarantee would be paid in line with whatever the CBA says. And it's a certain timeline. So it'd probably okay. get mixed in with his weekly paychecks. But at the end of the day, 85% of his practice squad salary has already essentially been paid. Got it. You know? okay. So let me, uh, let me get the uh, undrafted signal. Yeah, up I think here. So I want yeah, to I mean, it's else. not, it's not what I would call a strong running back core relative to the league. Like you compared them and ranked all 32, yeah. but it's much more, vi- it's a, it's about as viable as they've had it in the last probably four to five years. Uh, you have a solid starting running back, you have a viable second running back, and then you have options, with uh, the third back, the scat back between Boone, who they obviously like to an extent, Agumunwale, who has some value, and then Valade, who uh, is probably who, who most fans would want to see get that because there's more promise with a rookie like that. Yeah. So it's, it's a viable running back core. Let's see. I wanted to see how this was going to... Whoop. Nope. Nope. Ah. You could, like, you could like mostly see it. It's just not zoomed in. They let you zoom in on this. No, the the screen is not big. Oh, it's not like uh, I they don't like formulate so it properly. I've been, I've been yeah, I've been messing around with the layouts on here, and I obviously I need to go back and fix this. So we'll. Oh, there you go. Uh, that last one looked pretty good, actually. Yeah, right here. Yeah. Uh, Even I'll if you to, can't I'll have to go me. back and play. I'll have to go back and play with them. So if you're if you're looking at this. I apologize for the size. I need to go back and fix this. So when you see all the reporters, the Aaron Wilsons, the Tom Pelceros, they're when they're starting spouting off undrafted free agents and, and what their guarantees, they're looking at this piece. This this is the document they're looking at. Um, yeah, I, luckily I have some access to, to this stuff as well. So go down here to Houston. There's only three of them on here and they signed a nine or I've agreed to terms. So validate $30,000 signing bonus, 145 base guarantee. So 175 total. Um, killing the offensive lineman. He got 180. So he got a little bit more. And then uh, the defensive end gay got 80 total. So hmm. what to see? Um, I think, Andre Carter with Minnesota. Yeah, he got a lot. I think he is number leader in the clubhouse. Yeah, 340 right here. I'm surprised. Like, I remember doing mock drafts on PFF, like, back in early April, and, and Andre Carter would always show up around the third round. And just the yeah. fact that he went undrafted, that's pretty wild. 
So there's a 226, 236, 230. Yeah, that was a weird one. I remember when Andre Carter's dad was a first round pick. Oh, yeah. That made me feel old. Yeah, that that would make me feel old. That's weird. So um just to give you a quick lesson. So signing bonuses, there there's a pool that each team I haven't received the memo. I, last year it was 167,000 and change. I'd imagine it's probably like 172 or something like that. So each team has a pool of sign-in bonus money that they can use on undrafted free agents, and they can't go beyond that. So they can use up to $170,000 spread out over their players and sign-in bonus money. There is no cap on base guarantees. So that's why you're starting to see teams really put a lot of money towards base guarantees where some of these players like Valaday is getting more guaranteed than a seventh round pick. So, you know, yeah, it's, an, it's a kind more of a, than, more than Brandon Hill. I think Brandon Hill, the seventh round pick for Houston, the safety and his signing bonus was like $76,000 with no, no bait, no base guarantees. So Valaday actually has more guarantees than him and he was undrafted. So, it's almost like you'd, uh, other than the pride factor and the history of it, it's almost like you'd rather financially be undrafted as opposed to be a seventh round pick, which then makes you kind of wonder how teams are going to start to value that sort of thing as well. Yeah, and another thing about being an undrafted free agent is you can sign a new deal after two years, whereas that's a, a drafted big, that's player, a big deal. Whereas a drafted player is three years. So yeah, yeah. I mean, if if you get if you're undrafted and you just somehow just light up a fire and, and end up becoming a starter in year two or something like you know kind of like Philip Lindsay was on that track there for a little bit with Denver, you know there's an opportunity for them to get paid very very early in their career. So that's something else to consider. I mean, literally from my understanding, teams are starting to call players in the sixth and seventh round. They're like, hey, if you're not drafted, we want to sign you. If you're not drafted, oh, yeah. we want to sign you. And it's like total mayhem. For like soon as pick two fifty nine is announced, woo, those phones are going and it is full on sure. chaos for about twenty four hours with undrafted and and I saw a couple of tweets from a couple of agents. They're like, you basically just have to take the offer that you get because it may not be there five minutes later. Sure, which is just wild. Must to be me. A, I mean, yeah, that must be a fascinating little like couple hour period for those guys yeah i mean you're just like especially if you're an agent that's got three or four guys and and you're trying to make and it's not like oh, you yeah, can you tell them you're like them. yeah i mean you basically have to tell your client like hey if we get a phone call and it's this then i'm just gonna have to tell them yes because if we tell them let me check with my client and get back with it yeah. it's not going to be there when i call sure. back and so that part's always been fascinating to me and that I certainly I saw some tweets about extending the draft. No, thank you. I think seven rounds. Yeah, is that would plenty. surprise me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, that part it would be uh, that. I mean, that whole stuff just fascinates me altogether. So let's see. Let's see if we got any questions from the crowd. You got any questions, comments? Throw them up. I hadn't had a chance to go back and kind of star some of the stuff, but let's see here. Yeah, and Deathridge, that was quite possibly one of the coolest names. So we had Deathridge, good name. Tank, and Juice. So if 
there was just a name draft and Houston probably won that for sure. Let's Moker, can we trade for Hop after June first if we cut Kirksey and pay same amount? Looks like Hopkins is not going anywhere, surprisingly. It's kind of weird. I think they had I think that they were look trying to work something out with Baltimore and then Baltimore said, nah, we'll go draft flowers. I could see that. So he's due, man. He's due a nineteen million dollars salary this year. Yeah, that, 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 that's just, that's not going to happen. Like, yeah, you you would have to. I, yeah, you would have to expect Arizona to eat a good chunk of that. Um, yeah. and they've got plenty of cap space. So, you know, if you could get them to eat 10, 11 million of that and bring him over at eight, eight or nine, we'll say say they eight, ten, four. So he comes over at nine million flat, um, and then Houston. So and then if you release Kirksey, Kirksey's five point two five savings. So you're still going to come out backwards around four. So I mean the team could make it work. They're starting. They're already a little tied up on the cap, but they could make it work. Um, after June first would be beneficial for. Arizona just for prorating out and spreading out the prorated money over two years for Arizona. So they could make it work. I just don't foresee that being much of an option for Houston. I think um, it sounds like Hopkins has kind of wore out his welcome in Arizona. And I think the, the path and the culture and the logger room that they're trying to build in Houston, bringing in Will Anderson and, some of the other players, I really just don't know that absent his this is this is never absent, happen. absent his performance off the field. I just don't know that that's a player you want in this locker room at this point. And if I and if I was DeAndre Hopkins, I'd want to go to a team that's a contender this season. Yeah. Uh, you're 31. You play on a lot of different teams. You play in the playoffs a number of times. I'd want to go to a team, Buffalo, uh, Kansas City. I'm just kind of naming teams that have needs. Uh, where I can win a Super Bowl this season. I think, that Arizona, is not here. I think Arizona probably said, let's just table this for now. Come play, put on your put on your show, and then we'll start floating your name out there around trade deadline time. Oh, that, that could work. Um, depending on the quarterback situation, that may not impact him. But if he if he gets I think there's a lot of uncertainty with Hopkins right now as far as what kind of player he still is. Mm-hmm. So if he gets off to a nice start this season. Uh, with the desperation that contenders are going to have, I can imagine his value being decently high, let's say in mid-October. So yeah. that, that might be a decent course of action for Arizona. Yeah, I think you could get a second for him if you find somebody desperate enough or maybe a team that's that's playing well that incurs an injury or is just looking for that final piece to get them through into the playoffs. So, um, yeah, I would definitely think that that's an option for Arizona validate a great UDF pickup. And my, yeah, I, I think we're all excited. I mean, I've always said, and Nick's always signed very small undrafted classes, especially the last two years. And, and COVID had a, a role of that two years ago, but I always want to just sign a really, really young juiced up running back as an undrafted and just really bring him in and have some competition and, and, you know, We'll see if it works. This is one that, and I wanted to get your take on this, Mike, and I also wanted yes. to get your take on 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 Aaron Rodgers because um, I know you follow the Jets pretty hard. So it seems like the Jets wide receiver room might be a little crowded now. 
And is there, I don't, Mims doesn't really intrigue me at all. Um, especially coming from Baylor and that whole system. But Corey Davis does have a little bit of intrigue for me. What do you, how do you see that, that wide receiver room playing out? I think the Jets, it seems like, are going to keep Corey Davis, at least as of now. That was thought to be, hey, he's going to be released at some point. I guess that's not going to happen. But if you're asking me if he was out there, yeah, if I'm the Texans, I would for sure be interested. Size, blocking ability, uh, that's the kind of player that you'd want because he's better than a lot of guys they have. Mims would be sort of a different category where you'd be betting on his talent, upside, being able to teach him the receiver position. I'd be willing to take a flyer on somebody like that, but I wouldn't be um, surprised either way. Corey Davis is the kind of guy that if he was out there, uh, I'd prefer him on this team because he would just represent an upgrade. Like he, he could be better than Robert Woods. I'm not entirely sure, um, but he could be a starting receiver in the NFL. Could be. Yeah. Lyle Collins. No, thank you. No interest in that whatsoever. I'm not even sure where he would fit on this roster. I, I think he's kind of really starting to fall off quite a bit. Nasir, who do y'all want early in the season? Colts or the Titans? I'd say probably uh, Indy, depending yeah. on if they start Anthony Richardson. Yeah, uh, it seems like Ursay wants him out there week one, and maybe not Minshew, but uh, um, I, I'm just in. I would just like I'm ready to play the Colts because I really want to see Richardson. He was definitely the most polarizing, kind of intriguing draft prospect yes. with the wide range of of outcomes with him. So I'm really interested to see if he ends up becoming a, uh, a more annoying quarterback to play against or somebody we look forward to playing against. Um, you know, we'll have to just wait and see, but you know, that's going to be an interesting tie up with him and Steichen and having maybe some similarities coaching up Jalen hurts and then have carrying that over to Shane, you know, carrying it over with Andy, the Richardson. Titans, I don't know. I mean, Titans, they're obviously going backwards. Wait, um, it's going to be. You, you, I don't know if you how long Tannehill's. <laughs> I don't know how long Tannehill's going to be quarterbacking up there. And you know, it's when you draft a quarterback like that, and you have a quarterback like Tannehill in the last year of his last year of his contract, and a team starts losing. Say Tennessee is mm-hmm. two and five after seven weeks. They're going to be clamoring for Levis and. I don't know what kind of plan Tennessee is going to put together. If they're just going to say no way Levis sees the field this year, unless there's an injury, but that gets really, really dicey when you have that type of quarterback situation. Seemed like the Titans fans were just none too pleased with their draft. Uh, People are just not happy with Rand Carthon. It sounds like he had a fairly uninspiring news conference on Friday when they picked Levis. And, And it's interesting because like they wanted to to trade up and draft Stroud, that didn't happen. And what's interesting when you think about Tennessee's fan base is, it's in Nashville, so it's one of these cities where there are a lot of people who watch SEC football. And I think part of the reason why they're so down on Levis is because a lot of those fans are SEC fans, and they saw him struggle last year um, at Kentucky. There might be people who like Hendon Hooker over him, so I think that kind of factors in. But they're just kind of like. This is what I compared it to when I was on the air on, on Saturday. It's not an exact comparison because the position is valuable, but what the, what the Titans cap have done a quarterback kind of reminds me of like, you know, you ever walk into a grocery store, or even go on Amazon and you're like, you know, 
I wasn't necessarily looking for pork chops that were 75% off. But <laughs> now that you present them to me, like the sell-by date might be in like three hours, but I don't know if I can pass on that deal. Or you go on Amazon and you're like, all right, this kitchen cutlery set is like 83% off. And I'm looking at my kitchen, and I think I have enough cutlery or whatever. But, you know, at this price, this seems like a hell of a deal. So I use that analogy to say they're sitting there in round three last year, and it's like, hey, Malik Willis is around. This seems like pretty fair value. Let's give this a shot. And then, you know, he goes to a very tumultuous rookie season where I guess the feel is that he just doesn't know the playbook at all or he's not adjusting to it, whatever. And then, you know – Last week, it's like, hey, I know they traded up for Will Levis, so the analogy may not be exact, but it's like, hey, Will Levis is available, and we wanted C.J. Stroud. We couldn't get him. We want to move on from Tannehill eventually. Getting a talent like Levis in the second round, boy, I didn't think that would be a possibility. Let's go with this. So that, that to me, like the Titans have made investments at quarterback, but it almost seems like it's happening to them as opposed to them proactively doing it is, is how I feel. Yeah. So your uh, BCB, what's going on with Titus Howard? When's he going to be extended? I, I think you need to see more of Titus Howard, just just a little bit more. Maybe he's maybe an in-season, mid-season kind of extension candidate. I, I think, you know, last year was the first year he's made it through a full season, stayed at one position. I think you just need to see a little bit more, make sure it's still there, make sure he's a fit in this zone scheme. That would be my one concern for him to see if he's a fit in this scheme or not, and then how he works with Shake uh, with Shaq Mason. So that would be my take on that. Rose said he sent a question on Twitter DM, so he had asked thoughts on a uh, ooh, thoughts on a clowny one year deal to get some experience on run defense. Um, Again, I, I just think like the Hopkins thing. I think going back to the well there is probably not something that's going to happen organizationally. I'm not opposed to bringing in an edge veteran. I mean, you've already got Jerry sure. Hughes and and then of course you know Grenard who can never stay healthy. And it's it's uh who else did they have on endless here? Where's my death chart? It's a Chase little... Winovich, Horton. <laughs> yeah, Chase Winovich, um, Eric Rivers. I can't believe they re-signed him as Jack Easterby's boy. As Jack Easterby's boy. Yep. Um, yeah. So Odellier. Yeah, he's international player, and then it's Damone Harris. So yeah, they they probably do need to look at it at an edge guy. I, you start looking at who's available. At anybody that's under thirty, <laughs> it's a pretty small group. Uh, Yannick sure. Nagakwe is twenty eight, but he's pretty he's a pretty light in the in the back end. So I, you know, generally if you, especially if you look at San Francisco, a lot of their defensive, most of their defensive ends were 260 plus. Um, but there's some players like Dwayne Smoot, who was with Jacksonville last year, Melvin Ingram, he's 34. Um, eesh, gets pretty Trey flowers. He's 30. Jason Pierre-Paul, 34. He a lot of these guys are old. Carl Nassib at 30. Trey Flowers is, is only 30. Yeah. But, I mean, this, I mean, these are guys that you get through a week, uh, you know, three weeks of, of training camp, and you realize, oof, we need some help. And then so you start yes. hitting up, starting to hit. Because of, 
Clowney and those kind of guys, I mean, Clowney doesn't want to even come to training camp anyway. He wants to show up yes. on, on preseason and, and go play. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't – certainly not opposed to another um, edge player. I think they probably will find an edge player at some point. Just need to see what they have and the guys that they have right now. Mike, you doing okay Angelo Blackson. Angelo Blackson. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Um. Are you more excited to watch our offense or defense next year, which will be better? So we kind of touched on that earlier, but I, I think at the end of the day, I, I'm excited it's for both. Be o- but it's got to be offense for me. I mean, we've seen such such putrid offense here the past two years. Yes, with um, you know, especially with what happened last year, I'm just ready to see a functioning offense. I'm just that's really all I want, and I'm excited to see it. And I'm, you know. We haven't seen the zone scheme around here in quite some time. And if, if you've been watching the team for a while, then you should have some pretty good memories of watching Arian Foster. And I'm certainly not expecting Damian Pierce or anybody, anybody on this roster to, to present that type of performance. But, you know, we've seen what a zone scheme can do. And, you know, I'm at, I secretly, if he can stay healthy, I secretly have big aspirations for Nico Collins I think the X wide receiver in this position in this offense has the opportunity to really put together big yards, big wide, you know, big reception numbers. It's just all going to be on him remaining. Yeah, he's got to stay healthy. Yeah, yes. But I think there's a chance for him. And then prime or truth, I mean, prime time games. I would say probably just one, and it's going to yeah, be like was, a Thursday. It's going to be a Thursday night game if that yep. even is considered a a primetime game, but I, I think yeah. Houston's going to have to earn, earn that right to, to, to get those kind of games. So, yes, I could um, see, I'm, I'm curious if week one is going to be maybe a Monday nighter. Eh, eh, I don't know about that. I would say week one. I wonder if that's going to be at Carolina matchup. Would, number one and number two. Yeah. Curious if they do it that way. And one of the things about the, uh, I meant to mention this with the schedule and the win loss record is it's really hard for me to get a gauge on win loss record until I see the schedule, because I do think there's a tangible difference as far as it's not about just who you play, but it's when you play them. Now, a lot of that's determined during the season injuries, all of it, but you know, there are certain teams I look at on the schedule and I say to myself, I might prefer to face them early in the season as opposed to later in the season. Uh, so that kind of factors in. I, I like to look at it to see. Yeah. Um, they've because got, they've got. Yeah. And, and also losing can kind of feed on itself. Like if you have a really tough opening stretch, that could lead to more of a losing record than vice versa. So I kind of want to see that in probably a week or two whenever the schedule gets released. Yeah. Because they've got the AFC North and the NFC South. And then the two carryovers are AFC West and NFC West. So only eight home games this year. They're on the opposite side of the the seventeen gamer, but yep, um, yeah, yeah. So we'll see. I think uh, they were talking. There was a leak, or Schefter said maybe maybe May eleventh they might get the the schedule out. So all right, so a week and a day. Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. Um, that's really all about. It. Yeah, STX right there with me on Nico. I, I if he could stay healthy. That's my that's my one surprise player that I think can really really do some damage if he can stay healthy. So oh that's an hour and twelve minutes, Mike. Yes. I appreciate it, sir. As always. I enjoyed it. I I had a challenging day today, so I I enjoyed this a lot. You excited for Aaron Rodgers? 
I am cautiously optimistic, but yeah. very emphasis on cautious. We shall see. AFC all of a sudden didn't take very long. tough. Now, now all of a sudden, AFC is the loaded uh, quarterback side. It was the NFC for a little while, and then things have massively flipped over. So Houston's got a, a tough road ahead, but we're excited for him. So this will this concludes the offseason portion of the cap and trade series. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to probably take a little break. Been blowing and going here since September. So ready to take a little bit of break and then we'll figure out. I'll probably do a little more writing than uh, than streaming. But um, you can uh, catch Mike on Twitter as always at Mike Meltzer. And uh, where, where are you at now? Sirius XM Mad Dog Radio? Yes, Mad Dog Radio Channel 82. I'll be on uh, this weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, actually, double dip. So I'll be on 10 to 2 on Saturday and 10 to 2 on Sunday as well. Fantastic. All right. Well, that will be it for us. And I wish everybody has a good evening. And with that, we will shut it down. Have a good night. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.